You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome. This is Detailing Addiction. I'm Dr. Susan Blank, and you're listening to America's Web Radio. Today I have with me in studio David Donaldson and Michael Daly from the Atlanta Healing Center. Hi, guys. Hi, Susan. How are you? I am doing very well. And I think today's topic is going to be an interesting one because it's certainly one that has been debated a lot recently, and we're hearing more and more about it. Now, probably if you're not working actively in the field of addiction, you may not have been uh, aware of some of the um, some of the controversy, some of the back and forth, some of the frankly, uh, heated discussions that go on among treatment providers. And it goes on also among 12-step communities. Correct. And that is our topic, which is um, strict abstinence-based 12-step model treatment versus medication-assisted recovery and some more evidence-based programming. So just to be clear, there is a form of 12-step treatment, not mutual self-support, not aftercare, um, not community recovery, which is what we consider the 12-step programs as being. There is an actual evidence-based program of applied principles from 12-step called 12-step facilitation. And this is a manualized program that was developed at Hazleton Treatment Centers up in um, Minnesota. And it is one that has been studied and has been compared against several other types of treatment. So we're not talking about that specifically when we talk about 12 steps. We need to be really clear about that. And when we talk about other evidence-based programs and medication-assisted recovery, that's a bit different. Not that they're mutually exclusive either. So it gets a little confusing in our language here. Because the reality is most recovery programs do still encourage community-based ongoing support and, and, um, as, as a means of helping people put together long-term recovery and, and rebuild their lives beyond treatment. So it's not about that so much as the treatment itself. Right. Um, and, and in particular, when you talk about Hazleton and they're putting together the manualized version of the 12-step facilitation, they were instrumental in the big debate that we're talking about in the use of medication versus just abstinence. Because Hazelden is the granddaddy of all treatment centers in America and well, worldwide, and and they were an abstinence-based program for years and years and years. And and what I was going to say were is the operative operative word, right? Yeah. Because because now compared to thirty years ago, there's a whole different philosophy that's coming through. But there are still folks in these communities with, you know, many more years than that, that were brought around with complete abstinence-based. Right. Um, but I think even for Hazelden, it's not been that many years since they began changing their philosophy. Correct. It's been in the 2000s, at yes. least. Where they, they <laughs> began to be more open to using medication to assist with uh, individuals getting sober and getting into recovery. So 
if we back up a little bit and try and put some of this into perspective, at the turn of the 1900s, I guess that was the 20th century, we're now mm-hmm. 21st century. Do I have my math correct? Yes. Okay, good. Um, back uh, in the beginning of the 20th century, there was a lot of struggle. At that time, um, Americans were consuming vast amounts of alcohol, Cocaine and heroin were available over the counter. There's a famous soda created here in Atlanta that actually had cocaine in it. They don't tell you about that very much, but there was um, very easy access to alcohol, cocaine, heroin, and other kinds of medication that we now consider medications um, and because of that um, there was a, a huge problem with people suffering from the disease of addiction there were all kinds of outlandish cures you're using air quotes I'm using air quotes for those of you who aren't watching this on YouTube um, I'm using air quotes because um, inherent in many of these so-called treatments, um, there was actually alcohol, heroin, and cocaine in the medications themselves. And that's one thing that we have learned over the years is you can't treat the person with their substance of choice because it just doesn't work. If we could just tell the alcoholic, okay, tonight, go home, drink five beers, and Mm -hmm. no more. Right. Then on Friday night drink four beers and no more, and then on the next Monday, let's do three. If they could do that, it would be awesome. Absolutely. But they can't. Ever. Ever. Does not work. Once a pickle. Once a pickle. (laughs) You cannot go back to being a cucumber, and you cannot um, detox somebody uh, safely and easily and um, long-term by using their substance of choice. So there was all sorts of remedies. There was all sorts of things going on. And then in 1935 in Akron, Ohio, there was the beginning of what we know of now as um, Alcoholics Anonymous. Right. And that was the first meeting of Dr. Bob, uh, who is a surgeon, and Bill Wilson, who was a stockbroker. And they came together and they started this um, really quite brilliant awareness and method of trying to help people who were using alcohol get into a sobriety state and then get into recovery. And it it has worked. It still works for millions of people. I'm, I'm living proof right here. Absolutely. And it's certainly something that we still really encourage. And there's so many principles within the steps that are crucial for a person's recovery process. Um, um, So nothing we're saying is denigrating the 12-step model at all. No. Correct. And um, and they um, were very good observers of the natural process of this disease. And the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous talks about this very beautifully, outlines, you know, what the course of this disease is if untreated and what changes can happen and how to go about 
incorporating those changes in your life. And that has been truly um, a miracle for many people. Uh, it's grown from those two members to millions of members worldwide. And in cities like Atlanta, we're really lucky because you could go to a 12-step meeting any time of the day or night. Absolutely. And on most any block. And on most they any block. They are all over the place. They're free. Um, there's only one requirement for membership. And that's a desire to stop drinking or using. Correct. So it is a very wonderful form of support. And to your point, Michael, there are people who that is all they have needed to get into sobriety and to stay in recovery. Right. There, there are people who have not gone to a treatment center, not gone to a detox center, have used attendance at meetings, working the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous, working with a sponsor, doing service work, being very committed to their recovery and have been able to make that happen for their lives. Absolutely. So that's been a wonderful thing and um, continues to be a wonderful thing. Things have gotten a little more complicated. <laughs> they have. As we've moved on. But actually, we've gotten more solutions now than we had back then because they had these kind of issues. And, and when you look at the history of AA, they were very clear through trial and error of what worked and what didn't work. And, and in AA, they really came to realize that there are issues outside of AA that are just not for them to get wrapped up and not to have opinions about. So in the founding of AA, they, they recognize there are medical issues and there are our recovery issues, and those are separate. Right. But back then, the issue we're talking about today really wasn't an option. Um, um, it really started becoming an option, I want to say, in the 70s yes. with methadone. Correct. Um, and... In the in the late seventies and throughout the eighties, my mom actually worked at a, a VA hospital, um, first a clinic in Savannah, Georgia, and then mm -hmm. in Minneapolis, where methadone was the treatment for these recovering vets, a lot of Vietnam vets, um, who had the disease of addiction and had, in particular, heroin addiction, right. and needed methadone in order to put their lives back on track and in order to live a regular, normal, productive right. life. So um, there was a, um, a married couple. Dr. Vincent Doyle was a psychiatrist, and his wife, uh, Marie Nyswander, uh, who's a, a Ph.D., and they developed this chemical called methadone back in 1972. And this became the uh, revolutionized the treatment of people who were addicted to opioids mm -hmm. and very important time as you pointed out david because we had all of these vietnam vets who were returning back they had been in um, a horrific war situation ready access to heroin Absolutely. Many of them used heroin on a daily basis for years. Inexpensive, cheap, and ready, readily available. And they were 
young people away from home. Most of them had not volunteered. They were there <laughs> um, on a strict invitation from the United States government. So there was a lot of emotion around that. It was a brutal, difficult war. And... Um, Lots of emotion attached to it back here at home. And these veterans were unfortunately not welcomed back as heroes, which they were. um, And they were not necessarily treated with respect, but many of them came back with a lot of emotional, psychological, physical wounds and Addiction. addiction. And this was a wonderful answer. Uh, to this problem and um and and during that time period you know um today when we talk about opiate the opiate crisis it sort of encompasses medication and heroin and whatever you know people can get a hold of um back then it seemed like either you were a vet or you were an addict that had gone through the gamut of drugs and then landed with heroin. Right. It was it was an end stage drug. And so it wouldn't have been used by uh, uh, nice suburban moms or um, high school kids, um, college, college kids. athletes. Yes. That would not have been where you would see this um, particular drug showing up at that time. Um, it was um, a different and, and somewhat hidden epidemic, really, because it was a big problem. We're going to take a break. When we come back, we're going to roll this forward a little bit and continue the debate around treatment. Thanks for listening. The disease of addiction is a life-altering challenge, not just for the person suffering its effects, but also for the family and friends who support and love the one caught in its grasp. What should be the course of treatment? Who is the best person to render treatment? And what is the best place to go for the care that is needed? We know that you want answers to these and many more questions. Call 770-696-9862 and speak to a representative of the Atlanta Healing Center. They can tailor a program specifically designed to address the needs of the person suffering with an addiction or give you guidance as to where that help may be found. Information is the key, and the trained staff at AHC is here to assist. If you wish, you can also get more information on the website located at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. This is Daryl Pullis inviting you to listen to America's Homegrown Veggie Show right here every Saturday morning at 10 Eastern Time. Great guests, great tips, and valuable information about growing your own vegetables, fruits, and herbs. Perhaps you are struggling to cope with the disease of addiction. If not... You probably know a family member or friend that needs help in battling the cravings and the personal and professional damage done by the effects of drugs or alcohol. Get a pen and paper and be ready to write down the following. These are the issues that the trained staff at the Atlanta Healing Center address and treat every day. Their doctors and counselors with over 40 years of practice in the field of addiction can treat the suffering individual in a thoughtful, compassionate, and experienced manner and guide him or her along the path to recovery. So call 770-696-9862 and speak to a knowledgeable staff member about how you 
or your loved one can be helped to enjoy a better and healthier life. More information is also available on the website at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome back. This is Detailing Addiction. I'm Dr. Susan Blank. This is America's Web Radio. And today I have Michael Daly and David Donaldson from the Atlanta Healing Center. And we are talking about the huge debate among treatment um, providers and people seeking treatment for the disease of addiction. And that has to do with the abstinence-only based model and medication-assisted recovery. Right before the break, we started talking about the development of methadone, which is still available and is still very commonly used, probably still the most common used medication for the treatment of addiction to opioids. Um, Back in the day, it was the only thing, and our crisis back then was um, really involved with the... uh, uh, the veterans coming home from the Vietnam War, and other folks who were addicted um, to heroin. We didn't see the prescription drug piece of it involved as much. So we had this um, beginning of the divide between the groups that felt like all you need is some medication with the other groups that felt all you need is a 12-step program. Mm-hmm. And that started it. And David well, brought up a real interesting study that was done. Um, so right about this time, when when the vets were coming back, uh, Richard Nixon actually commissioned a study with um, Drs. Robbins and Jaffe, where they where they studied vets that were coming back and and. In Vietnam, they were full-fledged heroin addicts. Um, they had been tested, and they weren't able to not use and not pass a test before they came back, so they were classified as actually being addicts. And when they came back, they were able to pick up and resume their lives. They didn't go through, reportedly, major withdrawals, and they were able to just become productive citizens once they were back in their loving home communities, um, which led to this big classic study called the uh, rat park mm-hmm. where they they put rats one group of rats isolated individual in a cage and another group of rats in this big beautiful park where they could run around and play with all the other rats and have this great time and in that study the ones that were in the cage that where they had no other entertainment would use the methadone constantly to the point of their demise and in rat park most of the rats, they never actually tell you the percentage, but most of the rats did not continue to use method, uh, um, morphine. They, they went for water and they had a great time with the other rats. So the, the big emphasis was if you take addicts and put them in a really nice environment and you give them lots of loving support and you give them some structure for their life, they're not going to continue to do this self-destructive behavior of using drugs. Mm-hmm. And the morality started getting put in there and and the real emphasis on you just need to be abstinent and be a productive person and you don't need medication to get over this disease. So there is a couple of problems with that, the, uh, both the uh, vets coming back from Vietnam and the Rat Park study. 
So the first thing is, if you were to walk into um, coming up in September, October, you're going to see Rush Week. If you went to fraternities, sororities on most major college campuses, you'll see all of these young people engaging in outrageous drinking behavior. They are drinking. They are drinking lots. They are acting out in all sorts of ways. And if you followed those kids through their sorority or fraternity path, you would see a lot of them over the over the years, um, if they managed to stay in college, you would see that um, at any given time, if you just applied the criteria uh-huh. for current substance use disorder, if we're going to use the DSM-5, um, you would probably see that a lot of them met the criteria. A lot. A lot. Um, but then um, as they graduate, um, you'll see that there will be the vast majority of them will be able to go get a job, get in a relationship, have a house, be productive Adults, and you'll see others that drank drink for drink with their buddies. And these folks continue to struggle with alcohol. And alcohol uh, really can become a big part of their life and, in some cases, eventually take over their life and destroy their life. The difference between those groups was not that they got exposed to alcohol. it was the their disease brain. of addiction. It was their brain. And the same, I think, is true with the Vietnam vets. Now, we didn't have genetic studies back then, and we didn't do these kind. think of it in this way, but we all know people when the uh, bans on tobacco became so stringent that you can't smoke in buildings and you can't smoke in hospitals and you can't smoke on some properties. Thank goodness. Thank goodness. Um, that those people who could quit did. Right. Even when they were two-pack, three-pack-a-day right. smokers, even though they were full-fledged, heavy-duty, regular smokers, when it became really inconvenient and... Well, it was called a habit. Right. The and smoking habit. They added taxes to it, and they made it really a problem, and most of them were able to just quit. Just walk away, and yet we see that we continue to have around 20% of our population that cannot stop. Uh, In spite of lots of good reasons, um, they truly are addicted. They're physiologically dependent. They're psychologically dependent, and they... Their um, ability to stop is um, is greatly impaired, and they need formal treatment and formal help to be able to do that. So the Rat Park experiment, and to your point, David, they never really said, were there still some people, some of those rats in this lovely utopia, rat utopia, that still snuck over there and drank the the morphine water or, you know, just um, how many of them? And I would suspect that there were probably some. (laughs) uh, Somewhere between 5% and 20% were still Getting still, their buzz still on. having a little something, something, and their compulsion to do that had less to do with their environment and more to do with their brain wiring. So I think that's a problem, but a lot of 
people have used that study to um, define it several ways. One is you need the loving fellowship and um, structure of a 12-step program, and that's all you should need if you work it right. Mm -hmm. Um, And for some people, that's really true. True. Um, And then uh, some of our, um, uh, some other um, treatment uh, providers' philosophy, which is that um, people who um, develop the disease of addiction do that because of trauma. That they lived in a deprived, um, abusive, neglectful, uh, stark kind of environment, either literally or figuratively. And because of that, they developed this um, fondness <laughs> um, of, of using substances to take them out of their misery. And that if you, you know, help them get over their depression, their anxiety, their trauma, then they won't need to drink anymore. So we, we see these various groups breaking off, embracing their philosophy of what has caused the disease or the problem because many people don't call it a disease, what has caused the problem and what is the solution for the problem. And we're here to say, first of all, one size doesn't fit all. Absolutely. And the, the reality is it's not trauma work versus recovery work versus medication. It's all. all. It's combined. Bringing all of these things together and realizing that you're treating a disease, but you're also treating all of these other issues that become relapse factors for well, people. And what what really it boils down to for me, who, you know, I was one of those people that went through the 12 steps, worked through the 12 steps, go, you know, and was able to quit drinking and not have a drink again or use a drug. Um, but I look at today with the epidemic that we've got, and one use can mean death. Right. So the, 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 the game is much different. So it's interesting with, when you bring up smoking. With smoking, there's not such a huge debate between social support versus medicated assisted recovery because there's really not social support for quitting smoking. The option is you get on nicotine replacement, patches or gum or lozenges, or you can take Zyban, Mm -hmm. um, or you can take Chantix, Chantix, Mm -hmm. and you work with your doctor, and, and over time you stop the smoking, and then you slowly stop the medication. And with smoking in particular, that is is looked at as the most successful way to quit smoking. Right. In fact, they will real clearly say, trying to just quit abstinence only by itself, your chances of success are, are no. Well, and that's one of those things where there's also people that said, you know, I smoke three packs a day, and one day I just decided, all right, this was enough, and I just quit. Well, they probably could do that with alcohol and other drugs also. Right. You know, they were an abuser of, mm-hmm. of nicotine, maybe a huge abuser, but, but they did not have the disease of addiction. Right. And the ones who couldn't, they were all of these medicated assisted recovery options for them that, that are successful. have been shown to be really working, even work in combination really well. 
We're going to take a break. When we come back, we'll continue the debate about different types of treatment. Please stay tuned. The disease of addiction is a life-altering challenge, not just for the person suffering its effects, but also for the family and friends who support and love the one caught in its grasp. What should be the course of treatment? Who is the best person to render treatment? And what is the best place to go for the care that is needed? We know that you want answers to these and many more questions. Call 770-696-9862 and speak to a representative of the Atlanta Healing Center. They can tailor a program specifically designed to address the needs of the person suffering with an addiction or give you guidance as to where that help may be found. Information is the key, and the trained staff at AHC is here to assist. If you wish, you can also get more information on the website located at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. Live closer to your food source. Learn how to grow it yourself. Please join me every Saturday morning at 10 Eastern on America's Homegrown Veggie Show for tips and advice from the country's best gardeners. Perhaps you are struggling to cope with the disease of addiction. If not, you probably know a family member or friend that needs help in battling the cravings and the personal and professional damage done by the effects of drugs or alcohol. Get a pen and paper and be ready to write down the following. These are the issues that the trained staff at the Atlanta Healing Center address and treat every day. Their doctors and counselors with over 40 years of practice in the field of addiction can treat the suffering individual in a thoughtful, compassionate, and experienced manner and guide him or her along the path to recovery. So call 770-696-9862 and speak to a knowledgeable staff member about how you or your loved one can be helped to enjoy a better and healthier life. More information is also available on the website at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome back. This is Detailing Addiction. This is America's Web Radio, and I'm Dr. Susan Blank. Today, David Donaldson and Michael Daly from the Atlanta Healing Center are with me, and we're talking about the great debate around what is the appropriate treatment. So I think we have been clear, but let's just be real clear. The appropriate treatment is the one that the patient needs. And one size does not fit all. Exactly. And uh, having the patient evaluated to look at all of the six dimensions that we talk about from ASAM and determining what's the best treatment plan, including medication-assisted recovery, I think is, um, in my opinion, is the best way. I, I agree wholehearted. <laughs> it, is, um, it is really, really important. Not everybody agrees with that. Uh, many places have a program, and when you as the patient show up and sign up for that program, that is the program you get. Absolutely. And you fit the program. The program does, is not tailored to fit you. And we, we see this over and over again. And um, 
again, for some people, that's all they need. Mm-hmm. They just need to be taken out of the environment. They need to get some education. They need some structure in their life. Um, and they are able to, with support from family and community, to, to do fine with that. So I'm not saying that those uh, treatment programs are not successful because they are for some people. And there's even a change in their attitudes because once upon a time, if a patient showed up there and they weren't interested in doing what the program provided, then they would be classified as a, as a um, treatment failure and somebody who's not willing to do mm-hmm. what it takes to get clean and sober. Um, and, and now programs will simply say, you know, that's not the kind of program we offer. If you want medicated assisted recovery, you need to go somewhere else. Um, even with 12-step model, there are places that if you don't want to do 12-step model, mm-hmm. they will say, that's what we have. So if you would like to do something else, here's some other places. So at least that attitude's changing. Which is, um, which is really important because, you know, to not, um, to not have options when something doesn't fit is pretty much putting that person out to their own devices and sometimes that is um well that's what that's, that's what, when that's when the worst thing happens correct you know when they have that that fatal because it's slip people who don't right. recognize the disease of addiction as a disease in particular as a fatal disease when they just discharge somebody without options they're just ignoring the fact that they're setting somebody up to die so that is, um, you know, that is really important that, um, unfortunately, as a consumer of uh, addiction treatment services, it is pretty hard to necessarily know what you want, what you need. But um, asking questions and gauging the response that you get and the attitude can, can often be really helpful. Well, it's, it's very interesting to me talking to so many families that many times the disease shows itself very early and the parents basically go from one crisis to the next depending upon what treatment center or what philosophy they've, they've been um, given at that time. And it just makes you realize that this, this whole addiction – society, we don't have all the answers yet, you know, as a whole. And we certainly don't have a good way of communicating, except through America's Web Radio and uh, detailing addictions, <laughs> um, communicating what we're going for. But, you know, with medicated assisted recovery, they've approved for alcohol um, um, a couple of different medications right. and abuse, which has been around for quite a while, and Camprol. Right. which helps with um, cravings and right. helps with um, people putting together long-term recovery. With opiates, they've got methadone was the granddaddy of them, right. and then buprenorphine, suboxone, subutex, um, and naltrexone. naltrexone. Um, so for opiates, they've got three different options that come in different stages of um, quick release or long-term release, and now they have 30-day shots for, for those medications. Um, with benzodiazepines, they used, used to just kind of go for longer-acting ones to kind right. of slowly change it from like a Xanax to a Clonopin, and, and we realized that that would just continue the abuse. And so now a lot of people are using gabapentin and other medications to help with that. Um, 
because benzos and opiates are fatal mm-hmm. potentially if and alcohol are fatal right. if if not treated appropriately right so you mentioned earlier as well, David, um, the medications. We have seven medications that are approved for treating um, nicotine um, mm-hmm. addiction. And I think that, um, to your point, that's probably the most widely embraced uh, medication-assisted recovery um, substance that there is. And many people will... They might call a, a quit line. They might um, go to a smoke enders meeting. They might um, look for a 12-step program that um, is dedicated to nicotine. But for the most part, medication plays a big role. For um, many people, um, at least um, uh, <laughs> 75% of people who would be eligible and would probably benefit from medications being offered in most treatment centers today, they don't get it offered. Correct. Or it's only offered for detox for a short period of time. And medications um, like the ones you mentioned, David, are not offered as a, an ongoing part of uh, a recovery program. I admit, when I was raised and trained in um, how do you treat addiction, uh, abstinence was um, the, the king. The king. Abstinence was the way. And um, we didn't have a lot of these other medications, first of all. Secondly, um, the attitude was for many treatment centers developed by the person who opened the treatment center, who started the treatment center, who funded the treatment center. This is how I got sober, Mm -hmm. and therefore that works, and so that's what we're going to do. Right. And that um, the fact that there are these evidence-based medications that truly do make a difference was not really considered and is still battled over, even among physicians, about mm-hmm. whether or not to add it. But for me, the big game changer was when heroin came along. And one of the things that we're very clear about is when people are addicted to opioids and when people are addicted to heroin and fentanyl, 12-step programs rarely work, and they rarely work by themselves. Well, and just to be really clear... When, you're, when you said heroin comes along, heroin's been around Cor- for a correct. very, very long time. But now heroin can be the entry drug. Right. It's not the end stage. It's not the end stage. It's, it's everywhere. And, and probably the, the higher in the economic social class as a young adult you are, the more chances you're going to be. Cross pass with heroin. heroin. And that be your first drug of use. I hope our listeners are hearing this. Now, yes, we have had the the gradual um, uh, prescription drug epidemic growing, and for many people, they started with prescription opioids and then out of desperation or out of financial stress or their doctor won't write anymore. All of it. They've gone to heroin. But for many of our young people, 
Mm-hmm. It is their first drug of choice. The statistic that is quoted all the time is that 80% of people who use heroin use prescription drugs first. first. So 80% use prescription drugs. 20% used heroin first. And the age group, the demographics, and the number of deaths occurring in this um, young adult age group is staggering and continues to grow. Facing this, so yes, Michael, heroin's been around for a long time. Uh, Bayer Aspirin discovered, or the Bayer Aspirin Company discovered it in the late 1800s. It was discovered in Germany. It was over the counter. You could actually give heroin tooth drops to your baby who was teething. So it's been around for a long time, but this third wave of opiates and heroin in particular epidemic that we're seeing now, um, has a very different demographic and is now considered for at least some of our young adults a gateway drug. It is their beginning drug of use. Right. Which is a, a it's just absolutely a game changer when you're when you're in this field um, helping people to get clean and sober and you come across such a high number of these young people that are using heroin and Right now, the heroin is not clean. So, so there's a, a huge amount of fentanyl that's intermixed with the mm-hmm. heroin. And it, like I said, the, the next slip can be your last. Right. And when you're using something like heroin, um, like um, heroin-tainted fentanyl, you have no idea what dose you're getting. Even if you're injecting or smoking or snorting the same amount that you do every time, the, the difference in the potency and the lethality can be great. And they have no idea. Right. Even if they're finding it in pill form, they have no idea if right. it's a real pill or it's been pressed or, or they, there's just not any way of knowing what you're actually what you're getting actually when you get doing. it from somebody. And, Yes, many people, 80%, start out with prescription drugs. But there is a difference with heroin. Heroin is a different opiate. So heroin's proper name is diacetylmorphine. Almost immediately after you inject it or snort it or smoke it, it is converted to... um, 6-monoacetylmorphine. One of the um, acetyl groups are removed, and you get this particular molecule. We call it 6-AM or Mm -hmm. 6-MAM. This is a different molecule than any other opiate, and the way it affects the brain, the high people get from this, is completely different. And it's instantaneous, almost exactly instantaneous. The first path through the liver, that acetyl group is pulled off and you get this um, molecule, which itself doesn't last very long, a few minutes to an hour or so. And then um, it's broken down to morphine. Mm -hmm. But while it's there, they have this moment of bliss. 
right. and awe and just amazement. And when they when they talk about it, their face lights up and they are in just heaven from that little moment that makes it worth it to them to keep trying to get it again. So when they get to heroin, however they got there, when they get to heroin, that compulsion to use is profound. We're going to take a break. When we come back, we're going to talk about medication-assisted recovery. Thanks for listening. Perhaps you are struggling to cope with the disease of addiction. If not, you probably know a family member or friend that needs help in battling the cravings and the personal and professional damage done by the effects of drugs or alcohol. Get a pen and paper and be ready to write down the following. These are the issues that the trained staff at the Atlanta Healing Center address and treat every day. Their doctors and counselors with over 40 years of practice in the field of addiction can treat the suffering individual in a thoughtful, compassionate, and experienced manner and guide him or her along the path to recovery. So call 770-696-9862 and speak to a knowledgeable staff member about how you or your loved one can be helped to enjoy a better and healthier life. More information is also available on the website at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. Whether cruising the Strip in a 57 Chevy or taking the family on a vacation in a 71 Oldsmobile Vista Cruiser, you need to tune in to Classic Cars with Steve Ronaldo and Jim Weber every Saturday from 8 to 9 a.m. on AmericasWebRadio.com. Perhaps you are struggling to cope with the disease of addiction. If not, you probably know a family member or friend that needs help in battling the cravings and the personal and professional damage done by the effects of drugs or alcohol. Get a pen and paper and be ready to write down the following. These are the issues that the trained staff at the Atlanta Healing Center address and treat every day. Their doctors and counselors with over 40 years of practice in the field of addiction can treat the suffering individual in a thoughtful, compassionate, and experienced manner and guide him or her along the path to recovery. So call 770-696-2 and speak to a knowledgeable staff member about how you or your loved one, can be helped to enjoy a better and healthier life. More information is also available on the website at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome back. This is Detailing Addiction. I'm Dr. Susan Blank. This is America's Web Radio. And we're talking today with David Donaldson and Michael Daly from the Atlanta Healing Center. We're talking about the great battle that rages within the addiction recovery community. And that's what's the appropriate treatment. To restate our our platform or our uh, philosophy, the appropriate treatment is the one that the patient needs, and that's determined through a very thorough assessment, looking at all kinds of things, uh, including their psychiatric status, their withdrawal status, their uh, physical health, their recovery support, their family situation, their motivation. I was just going to say their willingness. All of these things are very important and to put together a treatment plan. We look at their brain. How is their brain um, uh, uh, functioning compared to other people their age? 
how is their um, cog- neurocognitive um, status? Are they functioning neurocognitively as we would have expected for somebody of their age and their education level? So all of these things have to come into play. And so it's the most important thing is to know what the patient needs. But when I was trying to apply an abstinence-only, as I had been trained, abstinence-only model to heroin, as we talked about heroin in the last segment, it, it doesn't work. Right. People can't stay away from this particular substance long enough for us to be able to help them make the changes in their lives. In their brain. Well, and I think even the ones who were fortunate enough to be able to go to a 90-day program and get completely clean and have all of this wonderful work on their trauma issues and their relationship issues, when they would get out, even if they didn't immediately go back to heroin, if something happened that that reactivated the disease of addiction, like they sprained their ankle and they got put on a pain medication or they went to a party and everybody was drinking and they thought, okay, I'm a opiate addict, so it's okay if I have a glass of alcohol, a glass of wine, um, (laughs) that they are almost instantaneously, certainly within a week, but often within the same day, back to heroin. Right. It is is astonishing. And when the um, medication, the buprenorphine products, um, initially the first one was Suboxone and Subutex, um, when these became available in the under-the-tongue or sublingual formulation, for me, this was the game changer. Mm-hmm. Because now I had the ability to get that person out of acute withdrawal, uh, reduce their cravings to almost nothing. Uh, I could block uh, with this medication... Well, I couldn't, but the medication could block their opiate receptors. So if they went out and used on top of it, chances are they wouldn't even get a buzz. Right. This was a medication that they couldn't overdose on. This was a medication that um, was um, has lots of safety precautions built into it. And it made them productive. It made them productive. It, it made them able to stay clean long enough to start building back the neurotransmitters and and everything that they need to start caring again. And unlike methadone, they didn't have to every day go get their dose because right. it had the built-in controls of the way it works within the brain that that didn't have to be so controlled from outside forces. With methadone, they were able to get back to a productive life, but they still had to be close enough to their methadone clinic to get their medication each day. And and so they were, in a sense, kind of on a leash, whereas with, with buprenorphine products, they're able to start resuming their life again. Well, and I, I think that a lot of people have the idea that since it's a partial, that they're going, the people that are on a Suboxone or, or buprenorphine, they're still getting high. Right. And it's, 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 totally untrue. Correct. They are not getting high, um, but they are having stabilization of their brain, Mm -hmm. and they're having stabilization of their body, Mm -hmm. and they're having the ability to attend group, 
to do individual therapy to work a 12-step program. They have the ability to begin to be engaged in their own self-care. We see them making their dental appointments and getting their mammograms and doing all of these kinds of important things. adult behaviors. Yes. Reengaging with their family, being able to go back to work or school, being able to be a part of their life again. And the family members say... This is my this is my loved one back. I haven't seen this person in years. I mm-hmm. thought they were gone, but here they are back again. And it is um, allowing patients to get their lives back. The um, the argument that's always thrown back at you is that you're just replacing one drug for another. That this person is still an addict, and you're not getting to a cure. You're just getting them hooked on what you want to give them versus what the dealer is giving them. But, how, do, how do you typically respond when? Well, because it is different. Um, it's different in that if we look at uh, the third step of um, Alcoholics Anonymous, which is being willing to turn your will over, the patients are given very specific instructions about how and when to take their medication. Um, they are following. Most of the time, <laughs> they're following our treatment plan. We're drug testing them to make sure that they're taking what they're supposed to be taking and not taking something else. And you you also have them on schedule. So they're Correct. not taking it to alter their feeling from one minute to the next. It's not a drug. It's a medication. Correct. And it acts on their brain very differently than the full agonist that you would have if you were taking heroin or Percocet or Oxycontin. It is a very different uh, molecule, and it's a very different experience for their brain. Are they physiologically dependent on it? Yes, they are. It is an opioid. It's a partial agonist and antagonist, and that's way too complicated probably for this discussion. Do they have to have that tapered down? Yes, eventually they do. Many places use it strictly for detox to get the person from their use of heroin to their use of nothing. And that's one way it can be used. Um, In in our program, we like to um, work out with the patient and request that they stay on it for 13 months. This is David's brilliant suggestion, which I I totally agree with, get them through all of their anniversaries, their birthdays, their holidays, and their one year. Absolutely. Which is a high relapse time for many people. And uh, give them that time to have their brain still, (laughs) to have their brain able to not be craving and looking and preoccupied with their use of drugs. So are they physically dependent? Yes, they are. Will they have to be tapered down off of this medicine? Yes, they will. Is it the sole solution? No, it is not. That's why we call it medication-assisted recovery. They also need to learn how to self-soothe. They need to learn how to manage stress in their life. They need to learn how to set boundaries, how to say no, how to ask for help, how to be back engaged and heal some of the wounds that they have and some of the wounds that they've inflicted on their families. Mm -hmm. So it's one tool 
Not everybody has to have it. We do have people who are opioid dependent who choose not to be on any medication. That's okay, too. Sometimes they would rather be on a full agonist like methadone. There's some risks in that, but for some people, it is very helpful in that daily accountability really does make a difference for them. And some people want to be on um, on the complete opiate blocker, um, naltrexone or Vivitrol. We help them find what they need, and that is what good treatment is. Thanks, guys, for today, and thank you all for listening. We will see you next week on Detailing Addiction. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening.